Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Girl Boss Radio from Panoply. I am Sophia Amoruso, the founder of NastyGal.com, the author of the New York Times bestselling book Girl Boss, and the author of Nasty Galaxy, a book you can pre-order now that's out October 4th. And you can reserve your signed copy at NastyGal.com slash book at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, or anywhere books are sold. On this podcast, I interview a different woman who's carved out a path for herself. We trace her from her first job to how she got to where she is today to extract solid advice for our listeners who are doing the same with their lives. To stay in touch with all things Girlboss, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Girlboss. You can sign up for our newsletter, Girlboss Diary, by going to girlboss.com. And you can follow me at Sophia Amoruso pretty much everywhere. Um, you guys, I hope Girl Boss Radio helps you achieve your goals, or at the very least provides inspiration for you to start making some. So help me achieve my goals. If you like our podcast, please subscribe in iTunes and share your love on social media. We've been in the top 100 podcasts lately. And with your help, we can stay there. So normally we talk about girl boss moments at the beginning of the podcast, we're going to start doing it at the end. So we can get just get straight to these interviews. Today's guest is so inspiring. Model and trans activist Gina Rosero knows how hard and rewarding it is to speak your truth. After growing up in the Philippines, Gina immigrated to the US to pursue a modeling career. Over the next 12 years, she modeled for brands like Target, Revlon and Macy's, but she didn't feel like the people around her knew her full story. So when Gina turned 30, she decided to come out at her TED Talk as trans to bring more visibility to the transgender community. It was a moment of true courage. And since then, Gina co-founded Gender Proud, an organization that empowers marginalized transgender communities around the world and helps them advocate for their own legal rights. We're honored to have Gina talk to us from our studios in New York. Welcome, Gina. Oh, thank you, darling. It's so nice to finally have you on the podcast. I know we met really briefly at the TED conference. Do you remember that? I remember that. You know, we were yeah. quickly, we were in a bar. We were going from one place to the other and we we were at that place and we're like, hey, yeah. We, yeah. I was like, who's that girl? She's pretty. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah, you were with Mark Pincus and I don't even remember who else, a bunch of Silicon Valley people, I think. Yeah, it was um, so funny. People kept on asking me at that time, at TED, like, oh, you're a speaker. What are you speaking? And obviously, you know, like the story that I'm about to tell, well, I'm telling about my personal story. <laughs> I know. I was like, what's this supermodel doing at TED? Like, not a lot of people look like you there. And I was like, she, she must be someone's girlfriend. Like, I don't know. Just like so, like, totally unfair, like weird assumption. But I was just like, what? Nobody looks like this at TED. <laughs> Um, where I start with uh, every episode is, you know, something that everyone can relate to. You know, there's stories about, you know, people who are known for doing things. You're known for for founding a company, for, you know, leading the way in trans rights and for telling like a really powerful story. Like a lot of the all the women on this podcast are known for something. But at some point in our lives, we're not known for anything. And I think it's really <laughs> important to highlight, you know, that we all have a start and we all had a first job and we all had a beginning and usually they're not very glamorous beginnings. And so that's where I want to start with you, Gina. What was your first job um, and where was it? 
My first job, I was actually a, a transgender beauty queen in the Philippines. <laughs> That's actually so a job. Amazing. <laughs> no, I know. And you were, were you 15? Is that correct? Yeah, I was 15 years old. You know, I was born and raised in the Philippines. And it's, you know, this weird part of the culture. You know, it's this very traditional, um, very strict Catholic tradition. But somehow we have this culture of transgender beauty pageants that happen all over the Philippines. And, you know, at 15, I was basically discovered by this woman. And that was my job for two years. That was a job. <laughs> How did she discover you? Were you living out as a woman at that time? Okay, so I was 15. I was still in high school. I was still, um, I was in senior high school. So in the Philippines, we don't have middle school. So okay. people graduate high school at 16. And I remember when I was uh, 15, I was in one of these sort of, um, you know, uh, like a town fiesta celebration. And mm -hmm. usually, you know, in the culture in the Philippines, during town fiesta celebration, usually there would be a singing contest, dance contest, and trans beauty pageant. And, cool. you know, there was a pageant that was happening, and I was with my friends. And a friend of mine told me that they have some friends who are coming in, and they're, you know, joining some of the pageants. So in, she introduced me to this woman named Tiger Lily, which is like this pageant manager. And she Amazing. basically, yeah, and she told me like, why don't you join this, this pageant? And, you know, it's a young 15, you know, young trans girl, that was like what you want. And that was like sort of the, the rite of passage that all pretty much a lot of the trans girls that I know at the time would want to do. So, you know, being told you should join a pageant. Yes, I will definitely be joining a pageant. So at 15, yeah. she took me in. She she was my mother and she's sort of like my chosen family. How do you feel like, because I've done like go-go dancing and, you know, I, I've been public and, you know, I do think that like experiencing your body, letting yourself be experienced by other people publicly, whether, you know, especially in entertainment where there's like usually like a safe kind of line between you and the other people. Is yeah. such, it can be a really healthy way to experience your body and gain confidence. Do you feel like that was the case for you? Um, Absolutely. At, I at mean, 15, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was, so here's what, what we would do. Like we would travel all over the Philippines. We would join pageants from like, you know, six hours bus ride away from us and from where I lived and it would be a group of us. So there's like this big entourage and at a young age, that was my form of expression, you know, like I've never experienced, you know, performing or dancing or even like, you know, wearing elaborate costumes and, you know, answering question and answers. So I was pretty much, that was my training. Like I've learned how mm -hmm. to, you know, how to communicate, how to talk to judges, how to, but also make the most of the situation because sometimes we would come in so late joining in a pageant after traveling for six hours in a bus ride, you know, traversing mountains and villages. And we got, you know, we get to a place and all of a sudden, oh, we're running late. We have to, you know, put in our makeup while we're in the bus and we're just sort of making the most of it, you know. And I look back on those moments of making the most of each situation, as much as it was so much fun, you know, that allowed mm -hmm. me to, you know, 
tap into like my inner artist, right? Performing and putting all this costume and, and, you know, that, that's sort of some of the skill set that I learned from when I first started modeling, which is like, okay, I'm, it's basically, you know, going to castings as a model. It's an addition and sort of like, oh, okay, I've done it before. I was joining trans pageant. So it was sort of the same thing. So that really allowed me to just get comfortable with myself, whether it's like a tiny little stage to like, 20,000 arena or like in a national television, like a variety show wow. with trans beauty pageant. So yeah, all layers. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And by 17, you had moved to the US. Tell me about moving to the US. What prompted that? Did you move alone? That's so young. Yeah, it was, yeah, that was really young. I look back on that. It was, well, my mom's side of the family has been to United States. So there's this, you know, there was a petition process. So after many years of, you know, mom had, um, had moved to the US in San Francisco. And then I had to wait six years before I could come with a green card. But initially, you know, growing up in the Philippines at the time, you know, I was 17 and most of the girls that was in my community that was part of the family of the, you know, the trans community that was a part of, most of them would actually move to Japan. This was the trajectory. That was the expectation because somehow at the time, you know, there was a lot, a lot of the girls would move to Japan, become an entertainer and they would continue sort of this this life as a trans beauty queen and work in a club and be a dancer, a performer, a singer. So I thought that's what I would be doing. And I was actually, you know, sort of planning my life that I would, that I would go, all of my friends were all going there. And I was sort of, you know, beginning to prepare. And then, you know, a big moment happened when mom finally called me and she said, Hey, your green card petition finally came through. You, you're moving to the U.S. And, you know, at the time I had no idea about the U.S. This was, you know, I didn't know what, what was that like. So, and some friends have told me that you can't really be, you know, fully be as yourself in the U.S. because there's no trans beauty pageant and national TV. So I, I initially thought I didn't want to move to the U.S., but then, you know, Mom really want me to move to the U.S., so she, you know, she researched and she told me, you know, there's a policy in the U.S. that you could actually be yourself by being able to change your name and gender marker and legal documents. So that was a big deal because, mm-hmm. you know, th- that's what you want to be recognized as the woman that you are. So that was really, that's what did it. And after that, yeah. I was like, Mom, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move there. I'm, you know, forgetting this this moment I thought I was going to be a dancer, which what I wanted to do and sort of continued this life and entertainment and performing. And my friends were all there. And all of a sudden I'm moving to the U S so it was, it was a big change. And, you know, I, I'm here and the rest is history, right? Because I couldn't be any more, any happier. That's so cool. What was it like the moment that you saw the F on your driver's license where you were like, I'm finally, you know, the world finally accepts me for who I've known I was my whole life. You know, that's got to be such an emotional moment. It's just, you know, a little like inside story about, you know, the TED talk, because, you know, you know, I was working with this wonderful woman named Gina Burnett. And when we were rehearsing my talk, and I remember, you know, when we were writing the talk, right? And every time I would mention, you know, the moment I saw the F on my driver's license, I felt such a 
you know, it was a powerful moment and I would cry. Something was triggered, you know, every time I would mm-hmm. say that and they just, and she's like, don't cry on, 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 you know, if you really have to cry, you know, just take a moment. So we had to like sort of change that and it just like, okay, just be with it. And, you know, just that happiness of, of seeing that F on my driver's license is such a big deal. You never really thought that could happen because certainly there's no policy in the Philippines that would allow that. And even, even at the time, this is, okay, let's look back a little. This is in 2001. You know, wow. changing your name and gender marker on your driver's license, you have to go through so many different hoops. And you have to pay mm-hmm. a certain amount of money. You have to wait for months and months for a court order. And then you have to announce it at a newspaper just to change your name and your gender marker. And you have to go through surgeries at the time. And it has changed. It has. A, it is a little bit easier, but it, it depends state by state. But just imagine the stuff that, you know, I had to go through, trans people have to go through just to affirm that. And, you know, and that's just one you know, of that process. And there's so many layers around that. And, you know, it's, it's validating. It was empowering. I felt like, okay, I am, I am recognized as the person that I am, not even like the woman, but like the personhood that I could, I could participate in, in the job that I want. I could apply for a job and, you know, be, be the person that I am. Absolutely. The trans community in the Philippines is, it sounds like it's a, a really, like a much more normal thing that a, a normal cultural event would include like a trans beauty pageant, for example. And there's just like a lot of support there. And in the U.S., that's gotten, I think, a lot better. It seems like there's a much, I mean, there is a much larger conversation happening, which you're obviously at the forefront of. But when you moved here, how did it feel to be trans in the United States, you know? Um, I mean, it's one thing to move across the world. It's another thing to move across the world as like a 17-year-old woman. And it's a whole other thing to find yourself in this category where you don't know like who your peers are or where to how to find them. And how did you find, you know, the support that you needed in the U.S.? And what would you say the difference is between being a trans woman in the U.S. versus the Philippines? It's huge. You know, while you were saying that, the, te- the thing that just kept on popping in my head, I was, I'm just a young trans girl in that little alley in the Philippines, grew up poor and just, you know, having that dream and wanting to be the woman that I am. And obviously I have so much gratitude now that I'm here in the U.S. However, you know, and I think, you know, when, when people, you know, look at the culture in the Philippines and what it is, it's, it, it could be misleading. Right. Because I I like to say that in the Philippines, trans people are culturally and socially visible. Right. It's like that as mainstream as you could imagine. You you see a six year old watching a trans pageant on a variety show and national television. Right. In elementary school, you could see it like it's part of the culture, but it's not politically recognized. So that's a big mm-hmm. difference, right? Because there's no rights that would allow you to be the person that you are. But when I moved to the U.S., this is in 2001, so it's a little different. It's There's not a lot of visibility that we're having now. But when I moved to California, you could there's a degree of political recognition. You know, there are some policies that allow you to be the person that you are. So, and it's obviously complicated. It's obviously the differences in culture. But I felt that, you know, in the Philippines, you know, it's part of the culture, but there's no political recognition. But it was sort of like the other way around when they moved to the U.S. You know, there's no visibility, but there is a degree of political recognition. So, but because, you know, 
I've been part of this long history of the Philippines of, of pageants and people moving from, to so many different countries. So when I moved to San Francisco, you know, I found, you know, the communities of trans women who are also part of the pageant who have moved to San Francisco. I got introduced to a friend who used to be part of that, that community in the Philippines. And she introduced me to trans women from the Philippines in San Francisco. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. I found my family. But then, you know, as a 17 year old, like I want, I actually want to work. I want to, I want to work and I want to continue, you know, living my life. And most of the women, in San Francisco that, that I got to meet were all working in Macy's and cosmetics department. And even though I didn't have any, you know, experience in working in cosmetics, I was like, okay, I want to be with them. And so I applied and, you know, I just learned by doing on the job. You know, hey, I look, you look back as at 15 years old, I have my team of like, I was such a diva, right? Having my team of like hairdressers mm-hmm. and stylists and all of a sudden, okay, I'll do whatever it takes to have a job and be with my community, even though I had no experience of applying makeup. But I had so much fun. I mean, I learned so many things. And But it's also uh-huh. this introduction to this new culture. Like, I didn't know how to... We speak English in the Philippines, but, you know, the sort of like the nuance of the um, the slang was so different. So I had to even learn how, you know, learn how to do these things. And I have, a, you know, a gay best friend who was telling me like, girl, you know, just listen to Beyonce and, you know, Destiny's Child music <laughs> to learn the slang, you know, like you'll, you'll get through it. And yeah, I think I got some of it, you know. So, <laughs> you know, as an immigrant, cool. all of a sudden you have to deal with new things. Yeah, absolutely. I think a big part of just becoming who you can be is sometimes you got to just like walk the walk, even if you don't really know where you're going. You know, you have to like fake it till you make it. And then you're like, okay, I understand the difference now. And all of us have to do that. When you look Um, back, right? I mean, when you look back on all those moments in your life, you're just like, you're figuring it out as you go along. And obviously, it's easier to say it now. But, you know, it really is what it's about, you know, and, you know, as long as you have that will, I had that will to just, I want to be in this community, I want to learn, I want to be part of it, I'll do whatever it takes to get there. Yeah, yeah, you have to be brave. And then, you know, you learn from your mistakes, you learn what's right and who's right for you and, and what's healthy for you. And then you can connect the dots in retrospect, but you actually have to make choices, you know, to have dots to connect. And yeah. that's an important thing for people to... And ask for help. I yeah. was asking for help from so many people. I mean, like I, you know, I was, I was, you know, that sense of curiosity. I was always curious of, of what people are doing and what they want to do and, you know, how they got to where they are and, you know, not being afraid to, to really ask, okay, how, how did you do that? How did you get there? And, do you, do you mind sharing with me, you know, and just and making sure also you pass that, you know, pass that around and share that with people. Absolutely. Um, and so you became a model after that. How did you go from the cosmetics counter at Macy's <laughs> to modeling? I mean, obviously, pageants were, you know, you were a pageant queen early in your career and obviously like a tall, beautiful woman. But how did that happen? So I worked in Macy's for about four years and I thought I wanted to go back to school and, you know, I was, I was studying, but, you know, people kept on telling me, hey, you're, you're tall, you know, you could fit as model. I've always wanted to be a model. I mean, like all those magazines that I would see of Naomi mm-hmm. Campbell, everybody. It's like that, that was a dream, but never really thought that, yeah, you could actually be a model. I had no idea that, you know, that, that could really happen. But 
people kept on telling me you should move to New York if you really want to do that. I tried a little bit of modeling in San Francisco. You know, I was working with an agency and, you know, it wasn't working out. So I just thought, okay, if I'm really going to do this, I have to do it in my own definition of the right way, which is like I have to move to New York City. So in 2005, I made that decision to to move to New York City. And it was, you know, I remember telling my mom, mom, I'm moving to New York City. And she just started crying. And she just told me. terrifying. Yeah. yeah. And she said, and the first thing she said, people in New York are mean. Why are you, why are you moving there? <laughs> you know, people are so mean. You're going to, people would, you know, there's a lot of robbery, all these things that she would tell me. And she's like, mom, you know, I, this is a dream. And, you know, I think from the stuff that you've seen me, from the journey of what I've gone through, I think she just said, okay, do it. You know, you could always come back if it doesn't work out. But, you know, I loved it. So in 2005, I moved to New York City, you know, not knowing really how to get into modeling. I have no idea, you know, of, of, of you know, getting to New York City. But it also, you know, this is in 2005. So it's important to have that those contacts that there is not an out-trans model. You know, it's mm-hmm. still a big taboo and shame and so when I moved to New York in 2005 I made that decision to okay this is this is an opportunity this is a new life and certainly I acknowledge the big privilege of being able to you know to pass and to to make that decision that when I told my agency I wasn't you know sharing you know my journey as a trans woman so when I started you know, modeling, I, you know, I didn't share that. I didn't share that part of myself because, you know, I was afraid. And some of the women who have come before me, some of the trans models, the big models like Carolyn Cosey and Tracy Africa Norman, you know, they were both my sense of inspiration, but also my sense of fear because they were, I knew that they've sort of paved the path for me but also what happened to them I don't want to happen to me because the moment you know when the industry found out about their journey they basically stopped working so it was this complicated layer of I don't want that to happen to me so when I started modeling you know as much as it was beautiful and it's it's fantastic that hey I'm here in New York City I'm modeling I'm living my dream this is this is the dream but also I remember, you know, going to castings and coming home and feeling so afraid. Always, like, yeah. I was always constantly paranoid that what if somebody would find out? What if that Page Six magazine, you know, um, mm-hmm. the newspaper would 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 say Gina trans, and all of a sudden my yeah. my my career you just would be over. Like this caricature of someone who doesn't have all of the intricacies of that every human does, you become this like one thing as soon as someone else tells your story for yeah. you, you know, and controlling your own narrative is so important. Yeah, it, w- it was tough, you know, it's, it's a lot, it's it's lonely, you know, because you're always in your head, you're always so thinking about, I, I felt like I was living a double life that, okay. You're hiding like in plain sight, you're hiding in your own body, which is, I mean, and no one else sees anything Yeah, else. obviously my friends, you know, my inner circle, they all knew, but like professionally and as an artist, as a, as a person who wants to blossom, as a business person, as, as someone who wants to fully excel in something, 
I look back, it definitely held me back. It definitely didn't allow me to fully express myself or the crazy ideas that I want to do, the collaboration that I want to do or, or projects that I want to do, you know, because you can't really be yourself. And, you know, it was I, obviously now I look back and I, I had to work in a lot of those shame that I've internalized as, as a trans woman, as a woman, mm-hmm. as, you know, someone who's gone through all those things. So, you know, it, there's a part of healing in that process that you have to go through that, you know, I have to forgive myself from all of those things that I've internalized. And I think after a certain point, I realized, okay, it's, you know, I need to own this. I actually need, you know, to accept myself fully and mm-hmm. fully recognize that, that before somebody take my narrative, I need to just own it. So and that's what I did. And so what was that decision like? You know, when where were you when you decided, okay, I want to tell I want to do a TED talk, I want to change my my career path, I want to be the Gino Rosero that we all know today? Certainly I could speak about that one thing that happened that made the decision, which is really, really powerful. I think I even took time off from modeling for about six months and wanted to learn something about iPhone application because, you know, some of the friends that I did, they know through Summit Series were all like in tech. And I wanted to learn so much about like, how do you, how do you do that? How do you learn that? I even, you know, I even worked at Inc. Magazine for about, you know, three months and wanted to learn about mm-hmm. marketing and, and, and learning something about marketing technology because I knew that was what was happening at the time and just wanted to expand my skill set. I didn't want to go back to school. And I, it's almost like I want to learn something while I'm getting paid. <laughs> How do I do that? So I want to apply to the magazine and, and do something with Ink Magazine. And I did that. And, you know, I, I went at the beginning process of, you know, figuring out my minimum viable product on, on my iPhone application. <laughs> so all of those things. So I carry that with me, right? So, I, and I said, if I'm going to come out, if I'm going to share my story, I, I felt that, you know, wanting to risk, you know, all this stuff that I've done, it has to be big. But I think the moment when I was with my boyfriend, I we were in Tulum, Mexico, and it was my birthday. This is in October 2013. And, you know, we, we were dancing in the beach and salsa dancing. And he just basically, girl, we were probably drinking many tequilas, you know. And he <laughs> basically just told me, so gee, what does turning 30 means to you? And I think because of that built-up tension and really wanting to to do something and this feeling of wanting to share my story and come out, I just said, love, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to share my story. And that moment was so freeing. And that moment was, it changed everything. And literally, I freed myself. And yeah. the following day, I started emailing friends, friends that I knew who could help me tell my story. And I just I just kept in like in this moment of, OK, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it big. I was and I remember I would send email to friends that I wanted to share my story. I want to talk about, you know, what's happening in, you know, transgender rights. And obviously, I've studied all of these things. And I remember this particular email that I sent to Cameron Sinclair. Shout out to Cameron. Love that guy who had spoken at TED. I sent him an email and I said, Cameron, you know, said in my email that I wanted to share my story. I'm, I'm ready to tell the world. And he doesn't, he didn't know, right? I'm basically coming out in an email and sharing mm-hmm. to him my story. And then at the bottom of that email, I specifically said, you know, my ask, by the way, 
in early 2014, I want to do these three things. I want to speak at the UN. I want to speak with the State Department and talk about policy and speak at TED. And obviously, he saw the TED. So he said, and he replied to me saying, well, you know, I'm connected to him. Happy to forward your story. And he did that. And um, I think uh, weeks after, I got an email from him. It's like, they, they seem very interested. This is, are you ready? And next thing I know, I'm on a call with the people at TED. And, um, you know, I'm on the way to TED. <laughs> wow. Wow. And so what is, public speaking is so scary. What kind of preparation did you do for your TED Talk? Um, and what was it like getting on that stage? It was. I have to give credit. I mean, this woman, Gina Burnett, is, it changed my life. She is also my Jewish mother. <laughs> uh-huh. we come, she's, she's my mother. She's my friend. She's, she's everything to me. I love that woman. So, you know, she taught me so many things. And I mean, some technical stuff of like, you know, week leading into TED, you know, we co-wrote those things together. And then I remember one of the things that you told me, the moment you wake up, you know, say your speech with, with sound. And then after that, turn on CNN and say your speech without the sound. Do that. And then say your speech while CNN was happening, you know, and while, and do that three times a day, the moment you wake up before you sleep. So I was doing all that preparation, but you know, this is a big stage. I've never given a public speaking. This is my first mm-hmm. time doing a public speaking. This is, this is really nuts, really. And, you know, crazy me, I guess, you know, I really wanted to do something <laughs> big. But I remember going to rehearsals at TED and I was at that main stage and something clicked and those muscle memories of being on stage, being in a pageant, sort of like it came back, you know, that sense of how do you create intimacy in the stage, in a big stage? Mm-hmm. I don't really know the answer, but like, I just felt like just speak like you're just speaking to someone and create that sense of intimacy because it is a personal story. And how do I really humanize that? And that's what I did. You know, people said like, you, you obviously you look so calm on stage, like, I kept on telling you, have no idea how nervous I felt. And I just want to get to the end, get to the end. But, you know, it had to happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. How did it feel? How did it feel to tell your story? Oh, it was so liberating. I mean, I came back, you know, backstage and Gina Burnett was there and we were we were crying and people were crying. And after the talk, there was a meet and greet and there was like a line of people waiting for me. And, you know, it was a range of stories. People just would come up to me and share their stories. Not necessarily about, you know, about LGBT stuff, but just like, you know, being yourself and people's stories and people open up. I think I realized as you share and allow that vulnerability, people, you give people that sense of, okay, I could be vulnerable and there's a sense of power in being that. So mm-hmm. it changed my life. It really did. And, you know, because I knew the power of TED and what, what could happen to that. And I realized that I want to utilize that and launch Gender Proud. And Gender Proud is here because I'm here with Allie Hoffman and she's my partner, my friend in all of these journey. And, you know, she's my co-founder and we work together and making sure that this attention that, that was coming from TED has to mean something. And we launched Gender Proud the moment they launched the TED talk, which you know, you really have no idea when they're going to launch a TED Talk. And when they told us, you know, they're going to launch after a couple of weeks, I've given the talk, we have to scramble, like we need to do our website now in one week. (laughs) And so tell me what Gender Proud is and what you've done with it since then. Yeah. So initially, when we did, when we launched Gender Proud is this advocacy 
uh, campaign. We work with different um, LGBT organizations, global organizations. We did consultations with them about, you know, what are they doing, about our ideas, about what what could be done, and specifically tying personal story and policy. And obviously, when I when when they first started, I talk about about my journey in the Philippines and what it means, you know, from a different culture in the Philippines and moving to United States and making sure that you know. We're not copying people's um, projects that they've, been, that they've done before. So, you know, I was telling my story and I work with the UN, um, been invited at the UN to talk about policy and what this gender recognition law, what is anti-discrimination law. And at the time, we focused on the Philippines because that's where I'm from. And obviously, I know the culture and, you know, I wanted to sort of also give back to that community has been so wonderful to me since I was young. And, you know, I went to Hong Kong and work with UNDP to, uh, you know, talk in panel discussions and talk about specific policy. So it's a lot of like connecting personal story and policy and humanizing, you know, statistics and policy that, you know, I think the bigger conversation is that, you know, you can change policy without changing culture. And those two things are inter you know, changeable and, you know, it's, it's fluid and one doesn't exist without the other and it has to work together because obviously there's, there's people in those statistics and you need to breathe nuance on, on those statistics that you're talking about. And so we started with that. And, you know, last year we traveled back to the Philippines. We did a, you know, a media workshop talking about the power of storytelling. What does it mean to connect your story to a policy and making sure, you know, effective ways Ways in communication, and um, and when we got back, we realized, you know, obviously as an artist, as as media maker, as you know, Ali being so good, as well as as in operations and, and figuring out, you know, creating projects and programs. So we realized we want to tell stories. So we started a production arm as part of Gender Proud. So. Gender Proud is op also operating as a production company. And since last year, we produced a web series in partnership with, with Logo and they did a broadcast on that. And, um, you know, we work with Fusion talking about another web series about transgender experiences and employment and discrimination and making sure there's nuance on, on those statistics that we kept on hearing about, about, you know, trans women experience double the unemployment rate. And if you're a trans person of color, it's actually four times of that. I know the statistics are staggering. I mean, just while I was prepping for this podcast, that really like jumped out at me. But just for our listeners, you know, it's one thing to say, I support trans rights. I, you know, um, it's another thing to understand the disparity that exists, especially in the workplace and in unemployment and in other places. And I just love for you to share that with us because I think education is so powerful. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's this notion of centering the narrative. I mean, because when, when we talk about the most marginalized and the trans community, it's definitely trans people of color, mostly, you know, African American trans women, my sisters and the Latina community, you know, it's many, and we have to look at it from this very inter intersectional lens, right? Those experiences of racism, trans misogyny, sexism, you know, discrimination, obviously economic uh, standing of people, all of those things intersect and becomes a factor. You know, one could uh, figure out, you know, the journey of, of a young trans person of color, right? That person would, let's say a trans woman would come out to her family and you know, let's say the family, you know, doesn't understand and doesn't accept her. She gets kicked out the house and you're, you know, you're young, you're 16, you're out of the house. 
but you need to transition. You want to transition. Maybe you want to have some, you know, hormones or you, you want to figure out how you would transition. But because you can't really apply for a job because your, your name and gender marker doesn't match your identification card because it's expensive. So you're forced to go into, you know, survival sex work and underground economies. And because of that, big um, risk and you know, potential HIV and other other components that puts trans people at risk before even getting to like, you know, wanting to just apply for a job on top of the, you know, the, the discrimination that would happen when a trans person is trying to apply. So all of those layers are so complicated. And I think one one way we could do is to really center those narratives. We need to, you know, give opportunities for trans people of color. We need to center them. When you invite them in a panel, make sure they get paid. You know, when you invite them and in, in, give opportunities, create that pipeline for them, right? Absolutely. And then what can our listeners just do like every day to make sure that they're supporting your work and the rights of all trans people out there? I like to always say this. Trans women are women. Trans people are, you know, I, especially in, 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 in a lot of uh, the history, especially even the feminist circle, there's always been the long history of tension between making sure we're talking about this essential of what is a woman, right? Trans women are women. That's, that's mm-hmm. it. So we need to acknowledge the diverse experiences of where trans women is coming from. So, you know, be that ally, you know, and that, you know, being an ally is not, you know, this person saying I'm an ally, like, what are you doing with that? And I think giving opportunity to a trans person, I think, even from little things, like, I've been so, so lucky for the last few years, obviously, being able to speak about this and go in media, when people ask me about stories that need to be told, I give that to another trans person that really needs to highlight their stories and that really needs that moment and that space. So be that ally, like reach out and economic opportunity is so critical. You know, I think that that allows trans people to self-sustain. So be that sister, be that ally to how could I help you? How, how could I create that pipeline for you to access job for you to have, you know, a, an opportunity to be to be successful? It's that simple. Mm hmm. And what advice would you have just for our listeners who are trying to be their own woman and trying to live their truth out loud? Um, you know so much about that, and I'm sure you're still learning as we all are, but what would it be that you have to share um, for the rest of us? Create your own rules. You know, be, follow that instinct, that passion, that, that drive that, you know, that you want to do, even though people would tell you that you, you can do a cer- certain, thing that you dream about and do not be afraid how you know no matter how huge that that dream is whatever that is like pursue that and reach out to people uh, ask for help you know do whatever it takes to learn to get into the door because for me I was a hustler I was hustling to get into the door uh-huh. and to make sure I get to that door I make the most of that opportunity and there's you know break those rules make your path and you know you make sure you break all those rules because you are the only one who is going to make that decision for yourself what you want to do and be your own boss. All right. That's that's what Girl Boss is all about. Gina, you are so inspiring and so brave. Thank you so much. And then 
tell our listeners where we can find you and Gender Proud. Sure. We love playing with our Gender Proud Facebook page. We do a lot of things. So follow us on Facebook, Gender Proud. And for me personally, about you know other things that I'm doing besides Gender Proud, um, I have a couple of projects I'm working on that I can't speak about yet, but you know it's exciting. Uh, you could follow sure. me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Gina Rossero. That's my handle. <laughs> cool. Got it. <laughs> um, Gina, thank you so much. This has been a true pleasure. Oh, thank you, darling. And now for some girl boss moments. Girl boss moments are a time in your week where you felt like you were in control of your life. Even the best of us let our lives get out of control. Our calendars run us and find ourselves just trying to keep everyone around us happy. And there's those moments that we sit back and soak into the bubble bath or feed ourselves a meal, prepare a funky burrito, or just watch The Bachelor in Paradise. Or, you know, get a promotion or, you know, start a company. Anyway, that's the moment. That's a girl boss moment. So you guys can tweet and Instagram in with the hashtag girl boss moment. And we'll find them and we will read them and you will celebrate your moment with me on this podcast. Michael J. Crawford. Oh, a dude at MJ Cross says, when your wife is the model for a Mary Kay promo, hashtag husband boss moment, hashtag girl boss moment. That's pretty sweet. That's like sending flowers via Girl Boss Radio. Asuki Saber at Smiley Giraffe says, Too busy to shower because I'm stitching my life away on the sewing machine. Got me feeling like Sophia Amoruso in The Girl Boss. Ooh, in The Girl Boss. Is that the movie adaptation? Aaron Osgood at Aaron Marie 012 says, Today I sent my first invoice for doing freelance work and set up an interview for a potential PR job. Cool. You know, you can use FreshBooks for all that invoicing and get a discount by using code GIRLBOSS. <laughs> Kelty Knight. Hey, Kelty, what's up? At Kelty Knight says, I'm flying to hashtag NYFW. If you guys don't know what that is, it's New York Fashion Week. In biz class, plus every seat is filled with a woman. Yes, ladies, work. Hashtag girl boss moment. Cool. Maria Orlick says, my girl boss moment was when I realized that I'm worth more than what I've let people treat me like. At girl boss, that is the ultimate girl boss moment. I had a girl boss moment. I'm on the cover of Success Magazine. That's funny. I like the word accomplishment better because that means like a piece of success. Success seems like a destination. And just so you guys know, it's not. We all keep stumbling. I'm just eating my words every minute and like, you know, biting my nails and I don't know, smelling my own pits. But yeah, still on the cover of Success Magazine. So my mom's proud. Girl boss moment. That was another episode of Girl Boss Radio. Please join us next week for another inspiring guest. Our producers, Shara Morris, thanks also to Odelia Rubin, Kristen Meinzer, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers at Panoply, and also to the band Phases for our theme song. I'm Sophia Amoruso. I'll talk to you next week.